This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks, and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Eric Schmidt on the New Digital Age. This talk took place on the 25th of May 2013 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. You've written a book which is um, a, a prophecy book. It's about the future. Um, this is high risk, it seems to me, because the future tends to take us by surprise. Um, you know, Woody Allen's line about you want to make God laugh telling your plans for the future. Um, so you're sticking your neck out, so why do it? We got, um, well, first place, let me start by, by thanking you and thanking Intelligence Squared and thanking the Royal Geographic Society for putting this on, um, and thank you all for coming. We, my co-author, uh, Jared and I, spent a lot of time talking about this sort of, this arguments between techno-optimism and techno-pessimism and so forth. And we eventually got sort of frustrated by the framing that everybody's doing. So we, we set out to sort of explore what, what the future would look like, at, at least in the ways that we can predict it now. And we ultimately came out with a relatively optimistic view with a whole bunch of very, very serious problems, which is what the book is about. And it's optimistic for the developed world, you know, here in the UK. It's also optimistic for the, for, for the developing world, the world for all sorts of obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, one of the striking things about the book is that the sort of get over the gadgets of the future in the first couple of chapters, well, introduction, first chapter, and then it get, gets into the deep problems. I mean, you say you're optimistic, but I think people will notice reading this book, it's not, you're not particularly puffing the company. Um, you're, you're saying, you're not saying the future's golden is Google. You're, you're saying well, something well, more well, the, the company, the company always likes to, you know, to have a nice positive sheen to it for obvious reasons, as, as companies do. But there, I think a, a critical analysis says, that these tools and technology are enormously valuable, they're enormously important, and whether you like it or not, the internet is going to happen worldwide and all these people are gonna join us. And people are going to react to it. Governments are gonna to react to it, companies are gonna to react to it, citizens are gonna to react to it, citizens are gonna to react to each other. We tried to sort of lay out what those different scenarios are, and, and indeed there's a set of issues for which at least I do not have solutions yet, in which case we sort of give general statements and we hope maybe technology can come along our new social etiquette can come along, and we cover those, whether it's in cyber war, in privacy, in the way governments behave, um, in robotics, and, and those sorts of things. So that point about governments, I mean, one of the things you say right at the beginning is the internet is the largest experiment involving anarchy in human history. Now, what do you mean by anarchy in that sense? Well, most people are, uh, most people have a, a sort of relatively static model of how people behave, and they assume that 
the governments are set, that the culture is set, and so forth. But that's not, in fact, true. And we've never had in our history a transformation with so much power to individuals. We certainly had transitions of power to monopolies, to kings, to corporations, to dictators, uh, even to central governments in, in uh, democracies. We've never had a situation where everybody had the equivalent of a supercomputer on their, in their hands. So this is obviously wonderful if you're a, a woman in a developing world where your rights are terrible and you're terribly mistreated, and you use this to document the abuses that are occurring for women around you, and you cause shame and outage, and you get that fixed. But it's equally frightening if you think about the empowerment that these tools mean for people who mean to do evil to others. And, and you're going to get both. Now, one of the stri striking sentences you come out is the world virtual population will outnumber the people of Earth. So we're kind of multiplying ourselves in virtual personalities. And, and one, what you seem to be saying is that this material is going to, this technology is going to extend us in this way, but also that means invading us as well at the same time. Um, you talk about making the online experiment as real as life or perhaps even better. And I think you've said in the past, um, in the future, children will be asleep or online. Well, it's true today. <laughs> uh, which you, is chilling. But... Those, of, those of you who have children, your child is online right now or asleep. There are only two states of children now. <laughs> and if they wake up in the middle of the night, they're going to be online. People find that chilling. I'm just reporting the news. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you do every day. Well, wouldn't you rather they were doing something not online? Um, well, I think, I think we're going to discover that this generation of children is far, far smarter than we were, that the tools and techniques that they are able to adapt cause cognitive development to be earlier, their communication skills will be better, and certainly their motor skills from gaming will be far, far better. So. You also, there's also talk of the development of Google itself uh, away from um, a search engine. I think you say suggestion engine. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the future for the developed world. And a simple metaphor for you, which is in the book, is you wake up in the morning and you, um, and of course, you wake up with a, a clock that's been timed to your REM cycle. So you're woken up at exactly the right cycle. So you wake up refreshed. You look at the screen. And the basic question you want to ask is, do I need to get up? So you say, do I need to get up? And the screen says, no. How does it know? With your permission, opt-in, all those kinds of things, it's calculated that there's nothing that's going to make your boss really upset today. The flight's going to be late anyway. You can sleep in. So you sit there and you go, I don't want that. Yes, you do. You want that extra half hour of sleep. Trust me. And the, the, the development of sort of infinitely intelligent assistance is in the path for companies like Google and others, um, which make your life better. And there are so many things that we can do now with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so forth, that really will change the way you interact um, and literally free up time. Today, computers seem to be, they sort of harass you. know, There's this problem and that problem and how to respond to that. Computers will be, get so good that they can actually more or less anticipate what, how, how you should spend your time. And again, this is all opt-in, all because you choose. Everybody gets upset about this thing. Trust me, there's an off button, learn how to use it, right? For me, 
uh, think of it as instead of having a, a, a person who's your, your work assistant, you have some, a computer that sort of helps you out. It makes perfect sense. So, so if you think about it from Google's perspective, the steps are there. There's a product called Google Now today. Uh, Google Now is, if you don't program it, which you can, it starts by trying to figure out where you live and where you work. So you turn it on. And so far, it's figured out where I live and where I work, and it tells me how long it's going to take. Is that useful? Sure. Right. If I programmed it, it would be able to do a lot more. I, I'm a bit suspicious of this word opt-in. Um, you say in the book where people have a responsibility to read a company's policies and positions before they willingly share information. Um, we're not going to do that. And we, we all get those screens come up, which you mm -hmm. scroll down and turn out to be thousands and thousands of words long. And we're unlikely to decide to take on your $1,000 an hour corporate lawyers in order to get the next gadget. You see what I mean? So we're not going to say, no, I don't. But I don't think you could sue us over it anyway. I think the facts of the matter is you're, 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 you're I think under the legal system, first place, those things are written by lawyers who basically think of every possible way somebody could sue you, which is why they're so long. Yeah. So let's start with that as a problem. So it might give us some ideas. <laughs> but, but, but the point uh, is... Yeah, have you studied the American legal system? No, I just live in fear of it. Um, yeah. the, 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 the point is that there's something in the book which it seems to conflict with that, which is that one of the things you say is that when secu as security gets, is, you know, develops, uh, and obviously this week there's been a terrorist act in London, so it's, it's something we're talking about. As it develops, um, people who are not on grid, as you say, maybe have a rougher time at airports, maybe they won't be able to travel. So in a way, we're being blackmailed into the system. So the opt-out is not complete. Well, again, you're creating a, a possible future scenario. Um, if you see a brand new expensive luxury home in Pakistan written, that has no connectivity whatsoever, you might think it's where Osama bin Laden is, right? The fact of the matter is most rich people in these countries are highly connected for all sorts of reasons. They have satellite dishes and so forth. The fact of the matter is most people are going to be connected for whatever set of reasons. And it may be that countries will ultimately largely ban having hidden people. That the danger of having a hidden person, and I'm not, I'm not arguing in favor of this, I'm just saying governments may choose to do this because a hidden person is somebody who the police can't figure out quite what they're up to. Um, and in this new world, maybe that will ultimately be important. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But, but I want to go back to your opt-in, because I, I disagree with the framing of what you said. Um, the, at the end of the day, online services like Google depend at a basic level on the trust of their citizens. So if we violate that trust, we will, in fact, lose you as a user. So a terrible thing that Google could do would be to take the information that we've accumulated about you and have it by accident or because of an error, you know, or because of a bad employee, make that public. That would, not only that would destroy Europe's, you'd be very upset with us, but the whole world would pounce, pounce on us in a big way. So independent of the law and the privacy statements and all that, which everybody wants to argue about, we have a very strong incentive to care about your privacy, to make sure you're comfortable with what we're doing. And obviously we make decisions which are rough judgments. So once, every once in a while, somebody, typically in Europe, not in Britain, announces that we're going to have to do opt-in for every single service and every single page. So if you think about it, what's the user, user interface of that? So every page you get, you have to opt-in. 
Next page, you have to opt in. Next page, you have to opt in. So that's generally known as blindness in the term. And what happens is you begin to be blind to the fact. You just click, 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 click. And so that doesn't strike me as a good solution to the people who have that concern. I think the general answer is that the online world, at least in the sort of democratic world, the services are voluntary in the sense that you do have choices. Um, they're certainly not monopolies in that sense. And if you do have a choice, you have a choice to have a competitor. In Google's case, to be precise, we make it extremely easy for you to take your personal information from Google and put it in a competitor's site, part of our policies. Yeah, I, I got my personal information from Google. I thought I was 15 years older than I am for some reason. Just <laughs> explained a lot of adverts I was getting. Um, the, the, you say, but you do say, as in a social contract, users will voluntarily relinquish things they value in the physical world, privacy, security, personal data, in order to gain benefits that come with being connected to the virtual world. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there is a, a trade-off. Well, there's absolutely a trade-off. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact of the matter is that the technology that our, that our industry is producing naturally ha gathers information about you. Does everyone here know that your phone knows exactly where you are? Yeah. Do you know why? Emergency services. Anyone here opted out of your mobile phone because it knows where you are? It has to know where you are. That's how the system works. It's the same principle. But that fits for the emergency service. That wouldn't be regarded as a loss of freedom. I, I, personally, I regard privacy as an aspect of freedom, to be free. Uh, so you're saying we trade a bit of freedom? Well, we are. But it, as, to be clear, that in the book, and I'll say here again, I'm very concerned that we're going to lose our privacy over time, that we have to fight for it. And if we don't fight for it, we'll lose it. And the reason has to do with the logic of security, right? So here in Britain, after these horrific terrorist bombings that you all had, you adopted the CCTV system, which the majority of British citizens are comfortable with. America does not have that. Uh, and the CCTV system is relatively thoroughly regulated, as best I can tell. So that's an example of a model of a trade-off of security and so forth. There are analogous things that you could imagine online. In Google's case, for example, um, and everybody should know that we retain the search history that you have uh, when you search on Google for somewhere between 12 and 18 months. That amount of time was determined by the European Union. And we just said yes. It's an arbitrary number. And that's an example of a trade-off between your privacy and the ability for the legitimate police and other public safety functions to figure out what people are up to. I'm not going to take a position on whether it should be 12 days, 12 months, or 12 years. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that's how it was sorted out. Those are decisions that Google should not be making. The, um, Henry Kissinger, you talked to in the book, and he, he's somewhat dissident on some of your points. Here. Yes. Um, one of the things he says, which relates to what we've just been talking about, is that he could not imagine a Churchill or a de Gaulle Imagine from the, emerging from this connected world. Um, he says unique leadership is a human thing. It's not going to be produced by a mass social community. Um, that, is, that is correct, and that is indeed what Henry, Henry told us. We went to see Dr. Kissinger precisely because we wanted to get a perspective of somebody who was, had a ge geopolitical view that was different from ours. And roughly summarizing, his view is that leadership turns out to be very rare in human societies. Um, he's a fan of de Gaulle. Uh, he uses him as an example. These leaders are very rare. We were talking about the Arab Spring. And our observation is it's, much, it's very easy to start revolutions now. Everybody gets together on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, 
have a little crowd, get everybody excited, have a few, you know, have the police overreact, have the government, who are clueless anyway, overreact, shut down the internet, boom, out goes the leader, you have a new country. Not that complicated, right? <laughs> That's really what happened. After years of oppression, bad behavior, police state, econ lack of economic growth, lack of opportunity for college-educated people, it was time for that system to go. Who replaces it? Well, our observation is that it takes decades to develop the leadership skills to lead humans, right? Um, decades to learn how to speak, to in inspire, to, Americans would say, to lie to. Uh, you know, all of the things that... Oh, we say that too. Well, I'm, I'm not speaking for Britain. Um, it just takes a long time to develop those skills. And so a 25-year-old who is a truly brilliant executor of a revolution is probably not going to be the next president of a 100 million person uh, country for that reason. And, and indeed, that's what you see with Arab Spring. So now you've got a real mess because you've got heightened expectations because everyone's now online. And everyone says, OK, good. You know, we've had the party. Now we want to actually grow. We want to fix these things. And then the really hard part of building a country, which is, by the way, uh, an independent legal system, respect for the rule of law, curtailing corruption, um, free and fair elections, figuring out what the Constitution says. These are extraordinarily difficult things for any society to do. And on internet time, they're almost impossible to do. And you, and you make the same point in a different form earlier in the book, where you talk about um, loss of heroes. Yeah. In fact, it's very hard to imagine, uh, um, given that we're now recording the lives of every single human being starting at birth, what they say, where they go, what they do forever, right? By the time they're 50 years old and they're these sort of national figures, and we know every single sentence and so forth and so on, and misbehavior, especially when they were 15, they were drunk, and they shouldn't have been. I mean, how will society react to that? We've never had this problem before, but it's quite, it's quite a significant one, I think, going forward. Well, how will, how will leaders emerge from such a situation? Is that constantly being shot down? Well, leaders will emerge. You know, uh, Bill Clinton said, I didn't inhale, right? Uh, Barack Obama said, I did inhale and I enjoyed it. Uh, Michael Bloomberg said the same thing. So uh, the fact of the matter is societal mores may change. It may be that, it may be eventually be that people will say, just ignore all the stuff I did below the age of like 22 or 25 or something like that. Um, I I'm much more concerned about this transition period. Here's an example. Uh, today, uh, certainly in America, and I think here as well, you're tolerant of juvenile mistakes. So you, you have a, a small run-in with the law, that kind of stuff. You can largely get these things expunged from your record, but there's no way to get things expunged from the internet. In the book, we say that there is no delete button, right? And I'll give you another example in a second. So the fact that there's no delete button means that there's this instantaneous record. So what happens in America, for example, is an employer, here you are, you're a 24-year-old, you're highly educated, and the employer record says, look, a great resume, you know, great schools, great GPA, all that kind of stuff. And then they spend all their time looking on your Facebook profile, and they say, this is the last person I ever want in my company. Now, is that legal? Absolutely. Should it be legal? That's a question that governments are going to face. I'll give you another example. Uh, a gentleman in America decided to publish the plans to build using 3D printing, which we talk about in the book, a plastic gun that's largely, un, uh, largely undetectable. This is a relatively crude weapon, but it does work and it will kill people. Um, in his brilliance, he uploads this to the internet and um, it gets copied all around the world. The US government, in their usual fast acting style, 
waits a few days and then discovers that exporting guns of this category is a, violates a munitions law, and they order the site to take the, this information down. Okay, so at the moment, all of the most evil people in the world, right, in all these random wacky countries, have plans that will allow them to, using 3D printers, make guns that can be used and smuggled through airports to kill people. Now, did this gentleman commit a crime? I don't think so. Did he commit a human moral crime? You betcha. He really did, because there's no delete button. Um, there was a flaw with that gun that required a nail to be put in it, I gather. So it wasn't completely exportable through X-ray machines. Well, presumably you keep a nail in, your shoe, nail in your shoe, and, you know, and they don't X-ray your shoes. I mean, they're, they're, and by the way, nails are generally available in most countries. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> it has to be a particular nail. But, but, and my, my, point, my point about the, the gun is that, is that there's going to be another brilliant, idiotic, stupid, guilty person who will next year upload a better design thinking that he's making the world better by publishing ways of killing people? How is this a good thing? Because people don't understand that this information, once published, cannot be retracted. The, the book is a very broad look, as if you are um, sort of talking about the governance of the world in the future. And you're, you're pretty skeptical about politicians, as are we all that you have in this now. And this, this troubles me slightly, because I'm not quite sure what you're saying this virtual world or the Google world or the world is relative to its current centers of power. Uh, I know it's Larry Page, your chief executive, said, suggested, uh, tell me if it's not true, but I read it, it sounds extraordinary, internet companies should not be subject to laws older than 50 years. Um, he also talked about setting, himself, uh, setting a company off on an island away from meddling government. Uh, I've never heard those quotes, so we will use our favorite search engine to check. If somebody in the audience could check that, what was the exact quote? Let's actually check it. Uh, he, Larry Page said, internet companies should not be subject to laws older than 50 years. I believe it was in the Guardian. Can somebody check if that's actually true? This is the benefit of... Um... Okay, yeah, we, have one, we have one gentleman here in the front. Show me the search result. Um, and you can use Bing, it's okay. <laughs> and you can use Bing to ask questions about Google. Um, well, in any case, I, I, I won't comment on, on the, the alleged quote. The, let's start by the, the statement that the world's going to get connected and that people are going to be empowered. And I'm, I'm quite sure of this. The number of Android phones, 900 million activations, which means there's more than a billion smartphones. Uh, there's roughly 2 billion users of the internet today. And there's roughly 7 billion people on the planet. So that says we've got 5 billion to go. By our current estimate, somewhere between the next five and 10 years, the vast majority of the remaining 5 billion people will join the internet almost exclusively through their smartphones. So you go through, what then happens? Um, well, obviously, governments have a lot to say about citizens' behavior. And some governments will think this is fine. Certainly, Britain will promote this. Uh, America will promote this. Um, Europe is promoting broad digital literacy, broadband, all those sorts of things. What about countries that don't really, not really so together or they're not run quite the right way? They're going to be afraid of this. And we worry, and we talk about this in the book, that China could, for example, develop an export business of its censorship. China today has what is known as the Great Chinese Firewall, which censors the results that go through uh, into, into China and back out. And they'll shut down the connection if it has information, for example, about Falun Gong, et cetera. And the list of things they censor is illegal to publish, but I can tell you that it's religious, religious movements and things which are embarrassing to the senior leaders. 
um, that technology could easily be exported in sort of a um, minerals for censorship trade. So we worry that when that occurs, if, sorry, if it occurs, the internet becomes balkanized. And by balkanized, I mean the fact that people have a different experience. And I'm quite concerned that humans do pretty well when they don't know what they're missing in terms of information. Um, in China, the censorship system seems to work in the sense that the average Chinese person is not aware of what they're omitting, and they seem to be able to do just fine. Uh, Jared and I and my daughter went to North Korea, and I figured, you know, you'd go to Korea, you'd see all these people sort of, you know, starving and with pitchforks against the windows and so forth and so on. I mean, you, you have this expectation of human disaster because they don't have access to information, you know, they're being mistreated in all the ways. But in fact, you know, mom's taking the kids to school, um, a gentleman going to work and so forth, and it looked like a reasonably orderly society. You, you of course, don't see what's missing. So I worry that this trend uh, of governments trying to sort of shape the internet in their own image. Another example, you can come up with lots of examples. Imagine Iraq, which where Jared and I both were and my daughter. Uh, Iraq decides to solve the, the Kurd problem by simply segregating the Kurdish internet to its own thing. The best example are the Iranians. We, we decided not to visit because it was too dangerous uh, for us. And the Iranians announced two weeks ago that they did not like Google Earth so they're going to have Iranian Earth. And Iranian Earth, <laughs> and Iranian Earth is an excellent product, and it omits Israel. <laughs> right? I mean, wh wh what do you say to this? This is the stupidest thing ever. Just staying on the subject of global politics, I mean, global conflict, um, a couple of things that would be nice if you developed. One is, you say, robots and drones will increase conflict around the world, but will decrease the likelihood of war. Another is that um, it will, there'll be fewer genocides, but more, more harassment and more discrimination. Um, can you sort of fill that out? Um, let's go through the genocide example. This is relatively easy, easy to understand. We went to Rwanda. Jared had written a seminal book on the 1994 conflict. So I learned all about Rwanda, both from him and from the people on the ground, and also their president, who's a victorious leader in the fight. Roughly 750 people, 750,000 people were killed in a four-month period by machetes in the most brutal way possible. The only way that can happen is with planning. It, you know, it doesn't happen randomly. You don't just say, oh, let's wake up and kill our neighbors of the other tribe. Had, I, I do the thought experiment. Is imagine if everyone in Rwanda had mobile phones, and they largely do today. Obviously, they didn't 20 years ago. We would have known. Somebody would have leaked the plan. Somebody would have said, hey, these guys over here are planning to kill all their neighbors. Something would have happened to either stop or lessen the sort of terrible things that, that happened during this conflict. Um, with respect to uh, the, the notion of robotic war, it looks to us that there's going to be a series of gradations of war. Um, so for example, with China, it looks to us like China and the United States are going to have a pretty serious code war, as we call it. So it's sort of a think of it as a cyberspace war. Uh, China attacked Google, for example. It is alleged, I don't personally know, that America is doing things to China as well, um, and on and on and on. This is going to go on, on and on and on, whereas, whereas in the physical world, China and the United States have relatively good relations given the differences in their systems. Lots of money going back and forth, lots of travel, relatively open borders, et cetera. Um. Sorry, you stopped before I was expecting you. Um, <laughs> so, 
the 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 there's a point about you make about well first of all about the nature of technology itself which comes up in the book on, on page 66 you say the central truth of technology industry is that technology is neutral but people are not and then on page 212 you say technology companies export their values along with their products now these are contradictory statements unless i'm misunderstanding them. well again perhaps uh, perhaps as the author i did not quite get the paragraph right um, let's start with a statement that technology can be used for good or evil and so in my industry, people tend to say the technology is neutral. I would say the technology is neutral, comma, and has an empowerment bias. And an empowerment bias, by the way, I do not mean that as an only positive bias. It can also be a negative bias. In other words, it empowers citizens in particular. And I think over the next five or 10 years, we will be reacting to the empowerment of citizens and also people who we perceive as idiots. Right. Oh, my God. Of course, this will be great for newspapers because there's always a crazy person doing something stupid that they can cover and say, oh, my God, this occurred, this occurred, this occurred. And the rate at which such examples will increase because numerically the number of crazy people will, will be added. When we originally built the Internet, it didn't occur to us that there would be any crazy people on it. And indeed, I, my, the first network that I built when I was a graduate student uh, only had passwords in clear text. It didn't occur to us that anyone would even steal passwords. That's how naive we were. Now, we're not that naive anymore. But it gives you a sense of the bias, the bias that we had. Um, with respect to the second quote, we argue, and this is a somewhat self-serving argument about Google, that one of the best ways to change a society is to have well-run global multinationals whose values you believe in, that you support, um, in those countries. So Google, for example, will not discriminate against women in the workforce. We're roughly meritocratic, and I think that's pretty well established. It's illegal for Google as a US company to engage in corruption. There's something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So we, and there's a lot of evidence when we wander around, and I'm not trying to shoot Google's horn. It's true of many other, many other global companies, including many British companies. They're one of the greatest ways to change the society is to infiltrate from within with a new set of values. Because these people in these countries are, they're, they're humans just like us. They're just trapped in the wrong system. So if you go back to North Korea, when we went to North Korea, how are we going to deal with the problem with North Korea? Sort of the hermit revolution. Nobody wants to talk to them. They don't talk to anybody. They hate the Chinese, and they're dependent upon the Chinese. The embargoes don't work because they're full of Chinese goods that, and goods from other countries that have been smuggled through China. We were taken to a, a shopping center that was full of American products, which, by the way, had um, brand new equipment, uh, women staffing it, and of course, no customers because there was no money in the country. It's a purely, purely fake store. Um, how, do you do, how do you change a society? You change it from within. And you change it by infiltrating the country with new ideas. What's the best way to get those new ideas on? Through the mobile devices. They have mobile devices. All the internet, all the country has to do is turn on the internet. They've chosen not to. Right after we left, they turned on 3G roaming. Three weeks later, they turned it off again. What's to say? I'm going to disagree with you on both those points. Um, <laughs> the, the technology is neutral. Um, it seems to me to be a misunderstanding of the word technology. Um, you can claim that science is neutral. It's a difficult claim, and scientists struggle to maintain it, and they very seldom succeed. And, and it strives for objectivity. But as soon as they turn away from the bench and as soon as they are in the world, things happen. They become involved in things. Now, technology is the application of science, mathematics, and so on. 
So it can't be neutral. It's a decision you take to, produ to produce this particular thing. I mean, when you design a, an interface, it ceases to be neutral. It's a design to do something. So I think we're, we're talking about neutrality in terms of usage. I, I understand the distinction you're making. The, one of the things that's always a surprise to technical people is that human beings don't, don't do what they thought that they were going to do with their product. So that's where we come with this technology is neutral with an empowerment and bias. We offer these products up. We want people to use them well, but evil people will use them too. Right. There's example after example. Um, a fun example has to do with Bluetooth. The people who design Bluetooth, which is the network that goes from your headset to your phone, it's a very simple network, very low bandwidth, did not think that it would become the peer-to-peer -peer network to smuggle out the images of the Green Revolution out of Iran. But the way we found out the horrific things were happening in 2009 was that people used Bluetooth networks to smuggle, to smuggle the information to a border point and then they got it out from there. So people are remarkably clever in these countries. Yeah, and, but, but take, this brings up to the, the other point, which is that you can't be making neutral technologies. You must be making technologies to sell advertising. Uh, there are, well... Uh, you have a, the same fiduciary responsibility. Well, I, I can answer a Google question, very simple. Google has a group of people who make ads, and they're clearly selling ads. Google has a set of products which are ad-supported, which are clearly commingled, if you will, guilty in that sense of the tone of your question. And then there's a set of groups that have nothing to do with ads. Uh, let me give you an ad for a product which is nothing to do with ads, which is Chrome. If you care about security, you should be using Chrome because it's the strongest browser. If you care about speed, you should be using Chrome. If you care about price, you should be using Chrome because it's free. And by the way, it does not itself come with any ads. That's you, an example. Uh, you, you do a lot of things. Um, I mean, I, you bought a kite flying company today that gathers up solar power, I gather. Uh, yes. <laughs> but you, you do a lot of, you diversify a lot uh, to things that... Are... But it's, it's easier if I simply say that Google does, uh, by virtue of the founding and the structure of governance of the company, the company famously says, we do things which we think matter that will make the world a better place. So we assert the right to spend lots of money on products which don't carry ads because we think that people will like them. Now, if we spend lots of money for a product that doesn't collect ads that nobody likes, then that's a terrible error, right? But you're making these products, sort of, you're not, this isn't feeding into the bottom line as such, these products. I can assure you we don't. Google News for essentially forever never had any, never had any ads, whereas Google Shopping did. In fact, with Google Shopping, we went from a free service to an advertising, essentially an advertising paid service. So, so, so we make this Google. is a kind of metaphysical position for Google that it has these values that will um, that well, allow you to be not entirely focused on the Corporations world. have a personality and a culture. Mm. And when you found a company, you found it typically with the founders' attitudes, right? And in tech, uh, the company's sort of the personality of the company is highly, highly correlated with the founders or or the early leaders. And the reason, by the way, has to do with selection bias, right? The, the sort of top technical person, top salesperson, has a choice of which companies. So they see the ones that are romantic and the ones which are technical and the ones which are aggressive and the ones which are sort of kumbaya, you know, and they fit themselves into that sort of personality. And the Google personality is very precise and well-documented, which is that we want people who believe that there's a greater mission to what they do and that we, f we focus on solving the problems of end users. Uh, it's not perfect. We make mistakes, and the press, of course, have covered those uh, exhaustively. 
But the fact of the matter is, that's how we mission. And there, I can tell you that in the decade I was a CEO, and now for two years as a chairman, every day there's an example where we make a trade-off in favor of a user and against revenue. I'll give you an example of China, right? As far as I know, we're the only company to have given up the revenue opportunity that was represented by search in China because we were unwilling to be censored by China. China is a very big place. There's a lot of Chinese people. There's a lot of advertising revenue that we gave up because it violated our basic principles. Um, there's a kind of elephant in the room, or you led into the room there, which is that um, taxation. Sure. Because you could perfectly well say that if all those are your values, then you should be paying the taxes. Well, we are paying the taxes that we're But you're going to enormous lengths to avoid them. And you say that is your fiduciary duty. Well, uh, let, let's, since you brought it up, let me, let's talk a little bit about the international tax regime. Um, and I'm somewhat perplexed by this issue, so and I'm happy to answer more questions you know, on this. So the international tax regime has existed for decades. And American companies have been structured like this for decades. The international tax regime also applies to British firms operating in America, you know, uh, European firms operating in America. And it goes something, something like this. Depending on exactly where you close business, exactly how you operate, you pay taxes in those countries. So the software industry evolved to the structure involving Ireland, which has been, again, very, very well documented. And this is perfectly legal. Now, if Google were not to have done that, we would have opened ourselves to significant criticism and more in America because we're supposed to operate that way. And so then how would we account for the difference? Is that a donation? I, again, I'm asking as a question, I don't know. So we adopted that model. I don't think companies should make decisions about taxes. I think the taxes decisions should be made by governments. And so if the government here changes the tax rules, we will follow. And furthermore, I'll tell you very clearly that we love Britain. We're investing heavily. We have 3,000 employees. We're adding another couple thousand, building a huge center in King's Cross. We donated lots of things to people. We're doing all sorts of things to, because we actually, we actually like, like Britain a great deal. The fact of the matter is, we would do that regardless of the tax rates. What? So, you, I mean, sorry, just one last question sure, on the tax point. Um, you, Google probably pays a much lower proportion of its um, of taxes than anybody in this room. Certainly, lower proportion than me. Uh, not, um, not globally. I don't know. Well, okay, UK. Um, right, right, but again, I, I'm, I'm answering your question in the context of the international tax regime. Yeah. So, right. in other words. I completely, for the record, I completely agree with you that this is a government issue. And, and by the way, I should say that no rational computer scientist would ever have designed the international tax regime this way, <laughs> right? It, it, it will defeat your logic, trust me. I've never met a rational computer scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, computer scientists like structure and order and like simple spreadsheets and so forth. This is not what it is. This is how it works. Yeah. But, but I mean, you've, you've said we want a discussion about tax. You, want, you think it should be a debate. Um, what, how much more tax do you think Google should be paying if you weren't the CEO and you're making it's, an objective decision? It's not decision? up to the taxee to say how much tax to pay. If it's up, were, to, the tax. Were, it's if, up to the government to if say. If you were not chairman, executive chairman of Google at this moment. Uh, I, I would have to sort of look at it. I mean, I honestly don't know, and, I, and I'm not going to make something up. One of the problems in Europe is that you have widely different tax schemes of, among the European Union members. And they make money up in other ways. So you have a low corporate tax rate in one area. And by the way, we haven't even gotten into all the, Europe, all the US issues around European tax rates and the fact that they're not harmonized with respect to the US rates. 
which is another sort of morass of tax issues, which, he, which people here won't care very much about, but people in America would. So my position is figure out what taxes you want to charge us. We will pay them. Not that complicated. Um, um, my point is taxes should not be voluntary. Yeah, absolutely. That's why they're called taxes, by the way. Do you have an identity manager? Do I, do I personally have yeah. one? No, no, no. You think, um, you think it's a good idea for the future? Well, in the book, we talk about the problem of identity. You, you, said, you talked earlier about digital identities. How many digital identities do you all have if we count the number of email addresses, login names that differ, and different services you provide? Probably more than one. Would that be fair? Right. Maybe five. This gentleman says more. Yes. How many? 10? 20? Yes. 20? You have 20? Yes. A serious, oh, as a volunteer already. You must, you, must be, you must be an early adopter of important new technologies. <laughs> so, so and because of that, we're not going to go to a single digital identity for many reasons, partly because I don't think you want the government to have only one way to interact with you. Certainly in America, that'd be true probably here as well. But also they do different things. So if we go back to your question about digital identities and you'll have multiple. Think about the country of Iran. They have 70 million people. They're busy trying to sort of uh, prevent people from having real internet freedom. So the solution in Iran is that you, each person has eight digital identities. So the, from the government's perspective, it looks like there's 500 million digital citizens even though there's only 70 million. And people use this to evade the restrictions by the government and so forth and so on. So you can't quite tell, right, how many people really represent this movement. So, so it is good, by the way, to give the Iranian government a hard problem here because they need to figure out how they're going to open up their government and open up access and open up things. And similar things will occur in other countries. OK, I'm going to open it up to sure. the audience now. Um, uh, um, are there microphones? Yeah, there are microphones. Please wait for the microphone. Um, I'll point out to whoever puts up their hand. Oh, start with the guy next to you. Hi, Eric. Hi. Thanks for coming. I wish Google many more success in the future. Uh, this question is about uh, when you said it's something wrong when things are, the society is created in the image of the governments or the nation states. Uh, how do you think that is worse than trying to create the whole world in the image of the corporate companies? The only difference is the nation states operate within the constraints of nationalism and the companies operate still within a set of other uh, parameters like corporate nationalism. In light of that question, can you also answer how far are you willing to go in terms of defending righteousness, like the example you gave is, you stop your services in China when you believe that your principles are not applicable. Will you, will you do it uh, when every other continent is going to do the same? Between being sustainably profitable and righteousness, what's going to be a choice? Thank you. Well, I would argue that in China, we proved what you call the righteousness, which for us was an application of our principles. If we were faced with the same choices today, we would do the same thing in another country. If that's, I hope that's a clear answer. Um, it's probably a mistake to speculate on other kinds of moral questions that governments can come up with. 
but you could speculate that there's a lot of different scenarios that governments could come up with, which we would find would be so counter to our values as a corporation. With respect to this question of nation state versus country nationalism and corporate nationalism, I think it's important to remember that as a company, we are subject to many, many laws in many different countries that differ. And so we have large sets of groups who try to remind us that this is legal in this country and illegal in this. Um, and they're particularly sensitive in the areas of privacy and in, of, of uh, uh, hate speech, for example. So in America, hate speech is obviously despicable, but is legal. There are many countries where certain forms of hate speech are not legal. Um, in some countries, it's illegal to um, criticize the founder or the king. So Thailand, for example, um, there, there's a, a series of laws which are brutally enforced in Thailand where you're not allowed to speak badly of the royal family or the king. There's similar rules in Turkey about the, the founder, his name is Ataturk. And so we work with that as best we can. We view that as sort of a tolerable problem, right? And we sort of work through it. But ultimately, um, the way the government solved that problem is they shut down Google. They arrest our employees. In Brazil, um, the head of our Brazilian operation spent an awful lot of time in both civil and criminal cases over activities for which he had no responsibility. And we try to sort those things out. Yes, sir. Hey, Eric. Uh, I've been uh, the other Omid or Omid Jr. for seven years at Google. So I had the pleasure to hear you speak then multiple times. And I know that as a technologist, you have a lot of interesting um, opinions also about a, a topic that's really important to me and I think to a lot of us, and that's the environmental issue. All this technology in the future will, um, won't come really to fruition if we don't solve that problem. And I, I wanted to hear some of your thoughts um, about the topic. Uh, so you, are you referring primarily about energy, energy CO2, climate change? So exactly. So a, couple, a couple of comments. The first is that you see the cost of having open and free speech, which I think was invented in Britain last time I checked. When you look at the people who are fighting against the data around climate change. And in America, because there's this tradition of having two choices, you have 99.99% of all the people who've looked at this data, including myself, on one side, and you have crackpot on the other, and the two are in the same TV show. Uh, welcome to America. So let's posit that the CO2 levels are rising, that it's a very serious problem, that there needs to be coordinated global action, and that we need to come up with some new solutions. So the first thing is, what is Google doing here? Um, we've made a series of commitments about being carbon neutral, we're building new state-of-the-art data centers. There's a lot of evidence that, that IT electricity use is rising, but you can use renewables for that and so forth and so on. We've also invested near a billion dollars in renewable energy products, uh, uh, products and services and investments, which should be good financially, as well as good for the environment. So I'm here to tell you that it should be possible for each and every one of you to behave as a rational business person, a sophisticated consumer, to make money and make some progress on this. And again, that's counter to what a lot of people think, but I think it's largely true. I worry that we're on a bad path here. And the reason is that we can't answer the core. Having now wandered around to 30 countries and talked to people, they all want what we want, what we have, excuse me, and to deliver what they have, the total energy loading that they need is significantly higher than they have today. And I don't see a good global solution where we tell them they can't have cars. It just doesn't strike me as likely to work. So we need to come up with some new solutions. Um, in the same sense that fracking 
which is essentially a technological invention where the, the pipes can now move uh, sort of arbitrarily through the ground uh, to find the gas and the oil wherever it might be. We need some new ones around, uh, around much more fuel efficient engines, much more fuel efficient cars. There's evidence with both wind and solar that wind and solar are getting to the cost near the cost of coal, at least for new builds. And that's very, very encouraging. As a gentleman up there. Hi, uh, thanks for coming and speaking to us today. I'd like to draw on a point that you made earlier and gave us an example of how do you define what a country is, what country has run well? You said it's very easy for you to say that uh, China doesn't line up with your values and Britain does, for instance, for free speech. But what happens when it gets gray? Well, we struggle through them every day. Um, and I use the examples, of, I'll give you three examples, Pakistan, Turkey, and Thailand. Um, in each of those cases, they have shut down YouTube for many, many months. In Thailand, for example, there was a video that was offensive to the king and under their law should be taken down. It was taken down immediately. They kept YouTube blocked for approximately nine months. Was that because out of sheer moral outrage in favor of the terrible destruction done to the image of their king by the 30 minutes that that video was on? Or was that because they didn't want all the criticism of the military junta that was in charge of the time that was present on YouTube? You decide. I don't know, but I'm suspicious, right, that they had another motive. Since they've since now opened up YouTube, we have a, a good operation there, and I think we work through that. With Turkey, we go back and forth, um, spend a fair amount of time in Istanbul trying to understand this, and it turns out it's illegal for you as a citizen in Turkey to get an unfiltered internet connection in your home or your business. What's the definition of a filter? Well, it turns out it's not written down in law. I met with the president, we went through this. Not even the staff could tell you what the rule of the filtering was. It turns out it's a family filter. What's the definition of what's appropriate to the filter? Not only is there censorship in their law, but you're not allowed to know what the censorship is. So that's an example, that's an example where it's a little too close to the Chinese model, in my opinion. We worked very hard and yelled at them and so forth. Uh, that law is in place, but it hasn't been implemented yet. So again, that's the reality of how this plays out. How do you find out? Uh, the, uh, Britain, well, when this government came in, actually did a set of things which made um, internet transparency and openness even more fundamental. So I would congratulate you all to having gotten to the right answer. After all, you invented it. Um, right. <laughs> there have been, uh, uh, speaking of your relationship with this government. A government minister really recently complained that Eric Schmidt could get in easier to see Cameron than he could. Um, are you worried about the closeness to our um, No, uh, I was a supporter of, of um, Cameron and George Osborne because I knew them personally. And um, my friends in the US were extraordinarily shocked that I supported conservatives because in my world, nobody does that, right? Um, but I pointed out that the British conservatives were actually socially liberal, believed in climate change, thought women should be treated equally. You know, these shocking things in America. Um, there's a lady there that was next to him. Sorry, there's a lot of hands. If you just put them up to when the question's finished, I'll take um, your conversation about filters is quite relevant at the moment. There's a bit of fuss here about um, pornography and children's access, and there's been recently been a report 
um, setting out what view of the impact of this is on children. Uh, and there's a debate whether it should be, a, you know, you should have to opt in or opt out. What, what's your position on that? The, the problem of pornography is a real one. And I think this report, I have not read it, but it's been described to me, sort of lays out some of the negative effects of it. Um, and the fact of the matter is there is adult pornography on the internet because there are countries that allow it relatively freely and then it crosses the borders. This is this no delete button example that we were describing earlier. The problem that I have is I don't know how to build a fil filtering engine that would block this pornography. You can't, there's no technical algorithms that we can use to detect it. People have tried, by the way, pretty hard. So you end up in a situation where you're deleting DNS entries, those are the names of URLs. And the moment you start doing that, you're putting in a filtering regime that could be extended to things which are not what we would, in this audience, agree is adult pornography. Um, in the Arab world, for example, adult pornography is highly illegal the interpretation in their laws of filtering, there are 44 countries, by the way, that do filtering in one form or another, includes an awful lot of, quote, pornography, which we would agree is political speech, criticism of the king, or criticism of the ruling party. So I worry with any conversation about filtering that it's a slippery slope. I understand why people propose it, but since we can't detect the evilness of it, if you will, I worry it's a series of steps. I'd much rather deal with these problems by better education, by better understanding of the roles of parents. Um, those of you who are parents, um, let's say you have a two-year-old, I would sit down with your two-year-old tonight or tomorrow morning when he or she wakes up, and I'd say, I am going to know your password until you're 18. And when they're three, you're going to, at their birthday, you're going to say the same thing. When they're four, you're going to say, I'm going to know your password in 18. So by the time they're about 15 and they say, why do I have to give you your passport? From your entire life, the policy of this family has been, I know your password. And that's how I, so I would encourage a, a, a strong parental role. Pornography is just one example of harmful information that could be seen by children. It could actually, and, and if, I, if I had children of that age today, I'd be all over this. I, th I think pornography on the internet was actually created by a Supreme Court decision because in the late 80s or thereabouts where they classified hardcore pornography as free speech in America. Um, well, the internet is a global phenomenon. Indeed. But and, and as far as I can tell, pornography has been in this part of the world, too. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, the, the American companies would not be able to do it if that Supreme Court decision had gone the other way. And America is obviously the dominant force in the internet. Um, I, I, this is too much of a leap, trust me. Um, Americans go to the continent, and the, the amount of adult pornography and the harshness of it and so forth, and it's openness shocks even us liberal Americans. So I would, I would just disagree with your framing. I think that the, um, in America, the, there's a series of very famous cases which involve, you know, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it, which was the famous uh, just, Justice uh, Stewart quote. And then there were a series of prosecutions in more conservative states which were over, overturned for that reason. It would be very, if you had such a rule today, you'd still have to have a definition of it. And since there is not agreed upon definition, because countries differ, I don't know how you'd solve this problem. Yeah. Okay, uh, gentleman there, and then that guy up there. Hi, thank you. Um, in what way do you think the institutional monopoly on education will change in response to uh, these brand name universities putting their degree courses and lectures online, like MITx? So. Um, 
I know a little bit about the British system because I was involved in arguing that the British system was not producing enough computer scientists. I wanted to take a minute and say that uh, after a lot of discussion, the British educational system has now made computer science, hard sciences, one of the sort of core sets of classes that university students have to do. Uh, there's an insufficient number of computer scientists and sort of the science type people in Britain, given the percentage of people. Um, there's simply too many smart British people that, that, that need to be in this that we're not getting properly educated. And I think that's largely been fixed. So that's a serious win for Britain. And I'm very happy to have watched that in the last couple of years. I can take you through the details if you're interested. In. The, the question to me in America, which I'm more familiar with in education, is what's it going to take to really change the structure of American education? Because the organizations are remarkably indifferent and change resistant to data. And so here you have professors and teachers who teach statistics and A-B tests, but they don't actually evaluate any choices they make. They just decide. Right? They don't look at outcomes. They don't measure them in any rational way. And parents desperately want better educational systems for their students. So there's a series of now online worlds where you can really test whether the kids are getting better education. I'm on the board of something called Khan Academy, which is targeted at 10 to roughly 17-year-olds. It's hugely successful. If you haven't looked at it here, it's very successful in Britain, KAHN Academy. And it's essentially videos that the students watch at home in the classroom, the theory, with again, modern and sophisticated teachers, is they do group problem solving. And there's evidence that that produces better outcomes than the traditional way in which teaching is done. So if, it's, if it works, great. edX uh, is an MIT group. There are a number of other for-profit ones. One is called Coursera. These are in the process of doing the same things for universities, right? That, that there now are global resources which you can compare. And to me, this is a real positive effect. Let's get a little competition of the educational system. Let's just get the teachers to prove that they're as good as they think they are. Teachers are incredibly important, right? But let's, let's have some measurements about outcomes. Let's get people the best tools. Let's give them career opportunities. Let's give them the tools. Let's get, let's get the classrooms wired. All of that together will ultimately produce a great outcome. My observation about the educational systems is they're largely run for the benefit of the parents and the teachers. In other words, for the adults, not the kids. Education is supposed to be about the kids. So let's measure the kids' outcome, figure out how we can make it better, and iterate until we get world-class outcomes. And, and in case you, you, you think that I'm just sort of making this stuff up, what's the competitive issue globally for Britain and for America? It's the Asian educational model. It's not Asia. It's the Asian educational model. You may not like these countries, and they certainly are not places that I would want to live, given my sense of civil liberties and rights. And I suspect British people would feel the same way. But the fact of the matter is they produce a higher percentage of extraordinarily talented engineers, mathematicians, and scientists. And that ultimately means technological innovation moves to there, and ultimately perhaps global companies that could, could provide even more competition, cause more job issues, and so forth and so on in our part of the world. It's a very serious issue. Uh, next man up there. I, I, I was just wondering if you ever worry about the dehumanizing um, nature of some uh, personal technologies. I mean, you were just talking about sort of education, perhaps. And just wondering if you're ever, you're ever concerned. Um, I would argue that most of the technology is more humanizing rather than less. So maybe you could give an example of what you mean. Uh, good question. Um, back at me. I mean, in terms of, say, communication, I mean, you're talking about digital personalities and people um, 
perhaps becoming slightly different um, individuals online or, or at least creating, you know, different personalities for themselves online. Is that slightly dehumanizing in a, in a way? Or? I'll let you then, then come to your own conclusion on that. I would argue that um, for decades, people have assumed that you would end up having people sitting at home. It was called bowling alone was the phrase. Yeah. People would sit at home, they'd be lonely, they'd have their television, the television would be attached to their head in some way. They'd have no friends and they'd be miserable. <laughs> yeah. um, it looks like that's completely wrong. It's 100% wrong. Uh, there's evidence that because of the new technologies, which include social networks, uh, texting, and so forth, people have more friends than they did before. They can span more, more things. More real friends or more? Well, uh, the Dunbar number is 150 people. So from your perspective, you should have at least 150 friends. That's how, according to the scientists, that's roughly the correct number. So the fact of the matter is, I would say that certainly my reach as a human being is far, far greater because I can email and text people. Um, uh, if, you, if you're confused about this, go and watch a movie from 30 years ago, before cell phones and before texting. So I watched L.A. Story and Manhattan, right, two movies that I happen to remember from when I was younger. Um, so the, the basic thesis in the Manhattan movie is there's a woman that has a lot of uh, uh, people trying to get to her. Well, she has the telephone at home, and she has to answer it because there's no caller ID. And she can't quite figure out, oh, no, 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 I can't talk to you now, boom. Right, and so forth and so on. You forget right, that with these tools and techniques, you can decide how to spend your time and who with and so forth. There's example after example. Pick some set of British comedies, go back 30 years, you'll see how much your life has changed. OK. Um, lady there. Thank you. And uh, just to return to the tax issue, sure. um, you say that um, it's up to governments to make sure that companies pay tax. And um, I, I'm sure that's fine for a company that doesn't claim any great virtues, but Google's made a lot over the years uh, about its, its virtues, its values as a corporate citizen. I, I think most people think that one of the manifestations of being a responsible individual or corporate citizen is to pay your whack, your whack as far as tax is concerned. And I think, therefore, that a lot of people are left with the impression that Google is somewhat hypocritical. Would you care to comment on that? Uh, no, happy to. As I mentioned, the first thing is, why would companies not want to have high taxes, just in general? Because they can then use the remaining money to invest. And so Google invests an enormous amount of money in future and speculative projects which if the tax rate were, for example, 100%, which you're not proposing and I'm not proposing, and I assume the government wouldn't do, would not occur. So from a corporate perspective, we understand we have to pay taxes, we have to follow them. Um, my conundrum is that if we pay more than the minimum, right, how do I classify that? Right, so if you, if you think we're behaving illegally, which is false, then you should investigate us and, and so forth. And indeed, I'm sure that will occur. But the fact of the matter is, what we're doing is legal. So anything beyond that that's taxes, to some degree, either we have to figure out how to classify it, and at least in theory for a corporation, it could serve as an investment drag. So there's no question that the government needs more money. We're not arguing that. And I, I think that's true in, in all of these countries. So I don't know how to solve that problem right now. I think the government should decide what the tax rate for companies should be, and I think we should follow it. 
Now we will. But the lady asked more or less my question, and I, I think, as I said, I agree with you that government should set taxes and so on. Um, but is there a sense in which this, um, you, you, Google's um, rhetoric since the beginning of being another, a new kind of company, a different kind of company with different values, is running into a brick wall here? Um, because people are angry about taxes, they're getting upset about it, and it doesn't make Google look quite as cool as it once did. Well, the, all, all I can do is show up and try to answer the question, right, as best I can. And I'm not defending, as I said, I said with some ridicule, I described the current system. Um, and that's about all I know how to do. Um, I could imagine lots of things that Google could do to make the world a better place that we've chosen not to. Uh, paying more than the taxes that were required is certainly one, but there are certainly many other things that we could do that would also be highly beneficial uh, to the world that we've chosen not to because we couldn't think of it or we didn't get around to it or those sorts of things. Okay, gentlemen then. Uh, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a question about Ray Kurzweil and your recent hiring of him as a, as a, a sure. director of engineering. We had him over here as part of the MIT Enterprise Forum a couple of years ago. He's a fantastic futurist. His goal is to build a human mind, according to his last book. So I'd love your comments on that. And just a tiny follow-up question. Is there anything to do with his hiring um, associated with the Google book scanning project as well? So the good news is that you, you asked the perfect question, and I cannot answer that question. And the reason is that we don't discuss our future unannounced products. But a reasonable presumption on your part, as an intelligent member of the, this sort of community, is that we hired Ray to work hard on the things he talks about. <laughs> go, go ahead, same question. Say again. One more up there. And, and the second part of the question, oh, is that anything to do with the book scanning project? Can't answer that question either. <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you, watch this space. I, I would believe we're in the singularity. That's a more complicated question. Okay, good. That will take a whole hour to discuss. What I would tell you is that uh, Ray represents a, a set of brilliant people who believe that using um, the computational power that companies like Google have, that we can actually get to a new level of, of intelligence and understanding. Um, he has built a team to look at this. This is something that we're very, very interested in. It's very early to speculate on exactly how you would see it. Uh, but Ray's record as an inventor says that he will change the world again. I strongly recommend you read the review of Kurzweil's book in the New York Review of Books by Colin McGinn. You might change your mind. So might he. <laughs> Please, read it. Next one. Hi. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Google's current involvement in education. I think I've largely spoken about, about what's going on in education. Google itself is not heavily involved in the educational initiatives that I described. That's an example, by the way, of things which we could spend a lot more time on, but we've, and which would make the world a better place, which we have not. Uh, we built a, pla a platform, which is called Course Builder, which became the underlying platform for many of the experiments that are now becoming popular. Um, and indeed, we were the sponsors of the first MOOC course. A MOOC course is a course that's largely taught online. Um, it was an AI, an AI course done by Google employees at Stanford, which had 150,000 students in it. It's extraordinary. We sort of proved the point. So we were there at the beginning. I don't know how much more we'll do versus let the, let the competitive markets work themselves out. Uh, there's a lady over in the corner. 
as here, sorry. This. Oh, am I, it's, sorry, a man, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, he's, he's virtually in silhouette, I can't speak. Thank you for that. Um, uh, so my question was with, to do with the comments on the impact of the internet on war and genocide. Um, so you can see the way that, that the internet kind of helps people from all over the world, especially where it's free, connect. Um, but in these countries where they have strict filters, is there not a risk that you get uh, dangerous propaganda almost by omission and you can, can create propaganda that, that makes people want to go to war and want to hurt their fellow people? Um, I agree with that. And let's use the example in Rwanda of this hate radio station that was used to actually signal many of the massacres and so forth. And had that radio station been destroyed by the Tutsis and they, no one quite knows why they couldn't find it or they didn't destroy it, it would have saved significant lives. My answer in general is the answer not to reduce the amount of information, but to increase the number of information sources. So in most of these cases, if you have somebody who's all into hate speech, let's get five other people who are into non-hate speech. And let's get people educated enough to understand that they should look at multiple choices, that they should think before they act. Uh, humans can be mobilized. They can be radicalized. They can be taught that there's only one way to do things. That person's a pretty unsafe person. People are naturally, however, curious. And so if we can educate them, it'll be different. If countries shut down the way you're describing, think about Syria today, right, which is, the internet has now been shut down, there will be people who will build various mechanisms to get information out of there. Uh, Google and uh, Twitter built a product called Speak to Tweet, where you can call a phone number, and when you call this phone number, Google's voice will then take your tweet and ship it out onto your Twitter feed. It's the only way to get, to at least tell people what you're doing, tell people you're alive, Report what's going on. That's had a huge impact. So even in those situations, information is very powerful. Uh, I think he's a man. That one there. <laughs> uh, hi, Eric. Uh, I had a um, kind of two-pronged question about um, what you were saying earlier about uh, CCTV, which was quite interesting because Google has just unveiled Google Glass, which I think is quite interesting. And um, my question really a bit about what happens to the opt-out when it starts invading people's space. Uh, so when someone else is wearing a pair of Google glasses and can be taking pictures of you at all times without you really being aware of it, how do they, what does that do to the opt-out when, when technology starts to infiltrate the physical spaces we're starting to see now and we'll start to see over the next 10 years or so? So a little bit of background is that Google, five years ago, Google would have just sort of announced Google Glass. Google is different now. And so with Google Glass, if you haven't used it, um, it's an extraordinary product. It's a little screen that sits up here. You can talk to it. You say, OK, Glass, and it talks back to you in your ear. You, it'll do queries and so forth. Uh, various people have figured out a way to get the camera that's in that to take pictures and also to show you what's going on. Uh, there are many, many, many interesting applications that people are proposing with this. Um, your fear is right in that without knowing it, you could end up with people recording without your knowledge. And so Google has spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how to release that, those components without violating your privacy. Um, and there are extreme examples. For example, uh, face recognition 
where we've said publicly, and I'll repeat again, that we're not going to do that without appropriate privacy uh, safeguards in place. It's too early to say exactly how we're going to do that, but that work is underway now. And I, I would encourage people, rather than assuming something is terrible, uh, which is sort of the normal human thing, these are real, real innovations. Let's, let, let's try them. Let's see how they work. Let's see what problems they solve and some new problems that they may create and work with them. At the moment, there are only 2,000 or so in the world. And so uh, we have some time. One more up there. Hello. Uh, I wonder if you could say whether you saw a difference between knowledge and information, particularly in the field of education. I'm thinking, I hope I've attributed this quote to you correctly, but a while ago, did you not call for geeks with Greeks? That um, I thought was a wonderful quote. And, um, uh, but, but then, uh, you know, when, when you start talking about the need to measure and outcomes, well, in Britain, we've had decades of trying to um, measure and outcome things in education and to no great profit. Um, so I wondered how you, and quite often I think information and knowledge get confused. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on how you saw the difference. And secondly- well, uh, can what, you just, Let, let oh, me just answer that part, because okay. I think it's an important question. Um, there's a lot of evidence that critical thinking is underlies all sort of knowledge. The ability to manipulate symbols, manipulate concepts, this is true in reading, it's true in problem solving, it's true in art. You know, can you think critically? Can you, can you express what you're trying to do? Can you understand the context in which you're operating and so forth? Um, there are new mechanisms to teach critical thinking that have emerged, admit that hold great promise. Uh, with respect to the measurement question, uh, I simply disagree that you cannot measure some of these outcomes. Uh, and I observe that in society, we're measured all the time, right? We're measured by our families, we're measured by businesses, we're measured by schools and grades and so forth. So we're better off figuring out ways to approximate measurement, right? To, to hear two different trombone players and try to figure out who's better to serve as incentives. I do feel very strongly that humans will re react to those incentives in a good way when they're done properly, ethically, and in the right way. That is literally my view. Then you had a second question. Yes, I did. The second one was, um, what, what you thought about, uh, the, the, a lady um, previously mentioned the worries about pornography that have been in the news this week. Well, actually, the, the report that um, it's based on falls much more into the field of advocacy research. It was commissioned by the Children's Commission Office um, with a, pri a problem that was prior, you know, defined beforehand, and they set out to look for certain evidence that isn't conclusive anyway. And I thought so it sounds, your, like your, you, sounds like you don't agree with the report. Uh, no, no, I don't. And okay. I really liked your response um, to what you would do. And it just struck me, it seemed a very sensible response. And there isn't that something most parents would, would do and should do? And why is it we're so sort of so questioning and anxious about what we can do with this, um, with this new technology that, as you say, has the potential to be so great? So it seems to me there's a contradiction between the fantastic potential and an increasing fearfulness of ourselves or our own ability to use it positively. No, thank you. First, but since I haven't read the report, I don't know its provenance. I can't comment on your, your critical view of it. I think we'll just have to take that as your view and, and hear other people's views as well. It seems to me that you, there's a couple basic principles in life. Anything that increases life and decreases death is positive. Anything that increases death is bad. Anything that gets parents more involved with their children 
is positive. And whether it's fear or in incentives or so forth, we can debate. Maybe it's culture, maybe it's religion. But at the end of the day, society is better with parental involvement, trying to make sure that, that all the trends are positive with respect to human life, health, safety, and so forth and so on, and let people come to their full potential, whatever it may be. Um, it's a relatively straightforward position, but I think it's right. I do believe that the technologies that we're talking about are largely enabling of that goal. And there are issues that we've been highlighting here that we need to address. Um, Lady back there, I hope. Uh, red sleeve. That would be a woman. Must be. Um, leaving aside, uh, you know, some of the issues that we've been discussing about terrorists sharing information, uh, pornography, etc. On a slightly more mundane level, the internet is littered with erroneous information, um, things which are it's just not true. Um, if we step forward into a world where we're planning to automate off of information that is then based on what you can get on the internet, uh, I'm, I'm not sure you know, what the repercussions would be if you know, the distance between X and Y has been miscalculated online. At, at what stage do we need to be thinking about quality control? Well. Of course, you've just made a very good search, a very good argument for a search engine. Um, <laughs> I think search engines, you know, the number of sites that turn up uh, non-factual information on a regular basis is pretty shocking these days. Well, the counter argument I would make is that the number of sites that have factual information is also increasing quite dramatically. So if but you want around... don't know how to filter them. Well, again, I, we're not into filtering, we're into search. That's called Google. And so if we're surfacing factually false sites to a legitimate query, then we're not doing our job right. That's what ranking is all about. And there are many, many ways algorithmically to, to do that. Let me give you an example to make the point. Um, let's go back to the tobacco companies of 50 years ago in America. And there may have been similar things here in the UK, I don't know. They were aggressively, and they were ultimately convicted, of aggressive misinformation campaigns. They were spending money to mislead people that smoking was good for their health, or at least neutral, which it obviously is not. Uh, and, and the scientists agreed. So today, imagine this: the, we started over, and they were doing exactly the same thing. What would happen is it'd be all these sites full of misinformation. It'd all be factually false. They would have lots and lots of sites. They would do their very best to game Google. Well, two things would happen. First, the Google algorithms would get better to detect this sort of, it's called Google bombing is the term of trade. And the second is that right-thinking people like the people in this room would in fact organize to say, this is crazy, right? These people are trying to stucker you, or whatever the right British term is, and off you go, right? And then the system would equilibrate. So given that there's no book that says exactly what truth is, this is the best that we can do today with technology. I also would tell you that the use of the internet is not a substitute for human judgment. I get emails all the time of, did you know, right? So for example, you gave a quote, which didn't sound like something Larry would say, so I asked to check, right? And so we can discuss that. But the fact of the matter is that's the right behavior. Let me just read. Oh, and what's the source of this? <laughs> Google's Larry Page is tired of rivals, wants to start his own country. It said it, it was quite, I'm pretty sure mine was from The Guardian, but I cut and pasted it. <laughs> okay, I'll read it. Thank you for pointing <laughs> it out. 
Um, this sorry. happened last week while I was traveling. Um, one, one more, one more up there, please. Yes. Hi there. Um, Eric, I use Google, but I don't trust Google. And from what you said earlier, it sounds like I'm pretty unusual. And I'm curious as to how unusual I am in that regard. Um, I find it quite difficult to trust an organization that's got such a huge amount of power over the information that you bring to people's attention today. And with that power goes a huge amount of responsibility. Um, and it's quite can interesting. Can I ask who, who, would, may I assist, who would you trust instead? Um, that's a good question. I, I guess. Um, now you can ask your question. That's my question to you. Thank you. Well, if you can answer my question first, that would be great. Um, so go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead and ask your question. Um, and, and just as an aside to that, um, at Adweek um, Europe um, recently, Lord Putnam was speaking on the Levinson inquiry into press freedom, and I asked him the same thing about Google and the power that it has over the information that, that we are now all consuming. Um, and he said, well, the chaps at Google are very, very nice. He said, I know them quite well, and they seem to be doing a great job, he said, but I would ask them to prove it. And so my question to, to you is, how can you earn my trust so that I know that your search versus filtering device that you're using um, is not corrupting any, any way the information on search that I'm receiving from you? Well, I can, so I can actually answer that question, and then I would like you to ask my, answer my question. Um, so, so there's a, let me tell you how Google works by policy and so forth. Um, we take all the information that we can find on these crawls and we organize them using algorithms that are the best ones we can. And we work very hard to not have biases in those algorithms. And you could imagine there'd be lots of different kinds of biases. So the Google search results are the best that computers programmed by humans using modern incredibly sophisticated algorithms can provide. There's certainly no intent to discriminate or otherwise uh, hurt information. And indeed, we are criticized for the inverse of what you said all the time, which is that we should omit information. So I think you can trust Google, at least as a presenter of information, to have done the best we can to get all of the information and rank it and keep it all there, even if you have to go pages after pages after pages. Does that answer your trust question, or are there, are there, did I misunderstand your trust question? Uh, no, I, I understand how the algorithm works, but what I'm saying is at the end of the day, because of the nature of your, your place in the market, you know, you are um, just the sheer number of people that are relying on you to bring information to their attention is absolutely enormous. And with that level, um, with that number of eyeballs looking to use to get, to get news, um, you do have a responsibility. So my question was, do you ever, do you have a global, for example, a global panel of experts that you take through how you're changing the algorithm, which is changing as people change the way they create sites um, and so forth, we to actually, actually just, we, we just that, give some, some we, level We do of, that is the answer. You do? Yeah, we do 800 or 900 tests, uh, changes a quarter. The changes are checked very thoroughly using all sorts of ways involving review panels, uh, A-B tests, and so forth so, to see. Well, we what also really help me to trust could, you then. Could, could you just let him answer? Because we're running out of time. Just got. Yeah, I just well, like to receive. But we have we have a person who does not do trust Google, and I'm trying to get her to trust Google. <laughs> <laughs> I may fail, but I intend to try. No, I, I'd like to receive by email the information that you're talking about about how you do that, and that would be a great first step. So okay. Thank well, you very much. again, let me. I, I do want to try to answer this. So, uh, when we make changes, and we're again we're not perfect, and we do make mistakes, we actually look at the old versus the new. And we have user panels and citizens around the world. When we do these, we do them in per country, per language, and so forth and so on. And we have a very, very sophisticated review process that looks at precisely that. Um, 
And we've done that since the founding of the company. I just want to come to one last question. Sure. Um, I just, just, sorry, I will make one point. Doesn't the fact of a suggestion engine rather change that? Um, the suggestion engines are, are different technology. Let me describe how suggestion engines work. Um, people here have used Amazon, I assume. Amazon will, if you buy a product, will suggest other products. You've seen that. Um, the general term of suggestion engine are called associative matching. And what happens is they say that if you bought X and other people bought X, they also bought Y, and so you might like Y. And you can do this mathematically in X times Y times Z. You can do it with many different kinds of products and so forth and so on. So the various forms of suggest are a simple form of artificial intelligence where the computer is trying to be helpful. That's distinct, I think, from the trust question because this, the suggest is simply trying to get you faster to your answer, whereas the trust question, which I thought was important, was about completeness and ethical and honesty in a ranking. But, yeah, okay, sorry, we don't have that, but I, I would have thought the ranking you get on the first page or is more directed to you as a result of that, in the sense that it's the, not a the, globally objective. The, the suggestion engines have nothing to do with that ranking. Um, if you are logged in as a Google user, and you don't opt out of the personalization, which you can do, you will get somewhat more personalized ranked answers. Uh, because it'll know, for example, which country you're in. It'll know a little bit about your search history. Um, most people are happy with that. If you don't like it, you can turn it off. Okay. The, the personalization aspect is relatively mild. But if you compare two people using Google, you will, in fact, see some differences in their outcomes precisely because of that. Okay, I'm sorry, this really has to be the last question. Is that gentleman? Uh, microphone? No, no, let's get the mic so everybody can hear you. Thanks. Uh, in your book, the, um, um, there's an impassioned plea that you give um, that we must fight for our privacy or yes. we'll lose it. Um, and my question is, what shape in your mind does that fight take? And who's on which side? And how will we know who won? It's a very good question. I don't know the answer. Um, I, I observe that it's very easy to give up your privacy for other reasons, right? So I mentioned here I am in Britain and I walk down the street, my picture is being taken, it's not being misused as far as, far as I can tell, and the police use it honorably. I have lost some privacy there, right? It doesn't particularly bother me, but it does bother other British friends that I have. Um, I might be willing in Boston, after the horrific bombing there, to opt in for the same system because of the horrendous trauma of the bombing that occurred at the end of the, of the marathon. So my point in that was to get us to debate it. The hawks always win from the standpoint of surveillance and safety, and because you can't calculate the cost of fear and the asymmetric power of evil, evil people, it would be easy to put yourself into a situation where you ended up in a surveillance state. Not Britain here, but I'm saying, I'll give you an example. In, in the course of our travels, and we mentioned this in the book, Jared, Jared and I and my daughter, indeed, again, went to a place called Plataforma, Mexico. You know? We also went to Ciudad Juarez, which for a while was the most dangerous city in the entire world, which is a serious win uh, in terms of terror. So in Sierra Juarez, for example, the police are in such danger that the police who were with us wore face masks so that they could not be identified and then killed by the corrupt police. Um, so it's quite something to operate with where the police are, are, are hooded, protecting us with machine guns and all this kind of stuff. 
So the reason they, they have this problem, of course, is the terrible drug war and all the money going to the US and all the drug customers in the US, which is a terrible problem. And it screwed up the police force and the governments and a lot of there's a tremendous amount of corruption. So the government in its infinite wisdom has built an underground bunker, literally below ground, secured in all sorts of ways, where when there's a traffic stop, they can using modern AI technology, figure out who this person is and who's their associates is in enough time for the traffic stop to radio to the police person that one, he's in danger and two, he should do his very best to arrest this person really fast before everybody gets killed. So it's a very serious problem. Exactly the same technology could be used by a future Mexican government to survey and trap innocent civilians otherwise doing other things. It's the same technology. So what I don't know about Mexico is, does it have the history of free speech, of privacy, of individual rights that countries like Britain and the US do? Or are they willing to, is the drug situation in Mexico so bad that they're willing to give up even those rights? And I worry about that. And that's why we said, and I think that the reason it's good to frame it this way is that these are ultimately societal choices and societies will decide them in a different way. But every country faces this challenge going forward. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, Phil. And thank you all. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.